Last Sunday night, my family and I went to hear a speaker talk about health and fitness. This is one of those meetings that was real encouraging as you walk in and kind of discouraging as you walked out. He talked about all the things that we should be doing, and I could stand up there and say just as much about, yes, we should be doing all this stuff, but isn't it amazing how we don't do the things that we should do for our physical health. One of the things he was talking about is, he said, you know, it's really not that good idea, a good an idea to skip breakfast. And he talked about, you know, our body needs and metabolism to be going all throughout the day and not just one big meal, you know, at the end of the day or lunch or whenever your big meal is. And I thought that my daughter, who was sitting beside me, was paying attention to her coloring book and not paying attention to what the guy was saying up front. But she wasn't. She was kind of doing both. And she leaned over to me after he made the comment about skipping breakfast, and she said, Daddy, you skip breakfast. <laughs> A little bit further on in this talk, the guy talks about, you know, uh, how important it is to have physical health, and maybe that there's some of you who have clothes that you can't wear in your closet any longer. You know, maybe your pants don't fit. And then he goes off into something else. And again, my daughter leans over to me and says, Daddy, you've got pants that don't fit. <laughs> now what? Last year, you outgrew your pants, okay? I can outgrow my pants. What is this? There's nothing like driving along the road. I could so identify with what Brian was talking about last week. When you're driving along the road, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit from the back seat says, Daddy, you're breaking the law. But most of the time, I'm really not. There's nothing like having your own personal incarnation of the Holy Spirit to guide you. When you look at the book of Jude you kind of feel the same way, that Jude is a lot like a child in the way that he communicates, and that he is big on honesty, and he is small on tact. Because Jude says it just like he means it, just like it is, with no holes barred. Well, let's look at what Jude has to tell us today. Second to last book of the Bible, Jude. Like Jesus Christ, Jude grew up a carpenter, as did James several books back, because the reason that both Jude and James, like Jesus, grew up carpenters because they grew up under the same roof. Jude and James were Jesus' brothers, little brothers, actually half-brothers. Jesus' father was God, and Jude and James' father was Joseph. But you have these guys who all through the life of Christ, if you were to read through the Gospels, they did not accept their brother as the Christ, as the Messiah. I mean, you know, really, I mean, what are the odds that your brother's the Son of God? Okay, and you can hardly blame them. Until your brother rises from the dead, and that's probably a pretty big convincing historical truth. And after the resurrection, Jude, James, and all Jesus' brothers became staunch advocates of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And what's interesting as you begin the book of Jude here in verse 1, you don't see Jude introducing himself as he could have as Jesus' brother, but rather, look how he introduces himself. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude says, I wanted to write about this, but instead I feel like I need to write about this. He says, I wanted to write about our common salvation. He said, we're not told much more than that, except that he wanted to expound on something regarding salvation. But instead, he says, there's a more pressing need, because these guys have snuck in. They've crept in unnoticed. And so I feel that a more important thing is to write to you and appeal to you that you contend for the faith. Interesting that the word Jude uses here for contend, uh, we get our English word agony from it. It's the idea of struggling. In fact, the word was used itself in wrestling matches of ancient Greeks, that you would struggle or you would contend with the idea of striving toward a goal. And the struggle that we're to have, and, and incidentally, he wrote it in such a way in the Greek language that it implies that you're continually doing it. It's not just you do it and you stop, but you're continually doing it. So what is it that we as believers in Jesus Christ are to be continually doing all throughout our lives? He says you are to contend for the faith or to struggle earnestly for the faith. Not just faith, but the faith. And what that means, as the context will go on to show, is not just you're struggling to believe, but rather you're struggling for the faith, meaning the Bible, the Word of God, because the text will go on and make that clear, the context. And he says that this faith, or, or the faith, the body of Scripture he's talking about, is once for all delivered to the saints. You know, there's some verses that you just want to walk up to, to people that believe that you know, that God speaks directly to them, to people that believe, well, I've got an additional book of Scripture. Here's the book of Mormon, or Pearl of Great Price, or you've got some other book that is called Scripture, and yet the Word of God says, once for all. If you read the book of Revelation, the very last chapter says that if anybody adds to the word of this book, God will add the curses written in the book to them. There's nothing else we need. I mean, Revelation tells us the end of the story. We don't need any further revelation. Remember what Peter wrote in 2 Peter, where he says that you're, everything that you need for life and godliness is bound up in the Word of God. Everything that you need. Actually, it's 1 Peter. Oh, well, Peter wrote it, 1 or 2 Peter, chapter 1. I can't remember which one it is. Everything we need is in the Word of God. And yet these folks crept in unaware, and so unnoticed by others who were, he talks about their condemnation. And a couple of things that he says that they do. 
the reason that you want to watch out for these guys is because they do two things. First of all, they turn, he says in verse 4, the grace of our God into licentiousness. What does that mean? If you have the New International Version, it has a little bit better sense of the translation, is the idea of a license for immorality. And here's the thought, that God's grace, because we know what God's grace is, I mean, grace means that you're forgiven. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to pay for all of your sins, then my friend, all of your sins are committed, are, committed, are forgiven. <laughs> Granted, they're committed and then they're forgiven. But the idea of the cross is that it, that it totally wipes them out. They are paid for in full. And a person who truly understands that, then the temptation in their life then becomes to not take advantage of that. Because the motivation no, to obey God is no longer because we're afraid we'll go to hell, because we know we won't. Cross covered it. Grace is grace. If you're saved, you're saved. God doesn't change his mind. But the temptation then is to take an advantage of that. And that's what he's talking about here. That those who turn the grace of God into an opportunity to have a free ride and sin. Now, you're going to have to be patient with us. Our projector, speaking of sin, is uh, kind of into it right now. So you'll have to be patient as, it, as we work with it. it. It may flash and start showing movies, but you just pay attention right here, okay? <laughs> Grace is not a license to sin. I read where in Pensacola, Florida, recently there was a school crossing guard that was, got really frustrated. Said that he was trying to get the, the cars that would go through the, the crosswalk to slow down. The particular intersection he was at, cars would just plow right through. And so he couldn't, he couldn't ever get them to slow down. He'd wave at them, he'd make hand signals, but they wouldn't slow down. So what he did is he got an old hair dryer and he wrapped it with black tape. And whenever a car would go through the intersection, he would follow the car like this. <laughs> and he said it was amazing how people all of a sudden slowed down and waved apologetically at him. You see, we will obey if we're afraid that we're going to get punished. But there is a higher motivation than that. God's grace is not a license to sin. God's grace is a motivation that we obey now out of gratitude. Out of gratitude. And any time that we willfully disobey the Lord Jesus Christ after having placed our faith in Him, when we willfully disobey, it is an expression of a lack of gratitude for the great price that the Lord Jesus did, paid when He died on the cross. Secondly, we're told, not only do they turn the grace of God into a license to sin, but secondly, they also deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're not told how they deny Him, whether they don't believe He's the Son of God, or Jude is vague here. We assume that they know what He meant. But uh, as far as the context goes, we can clearly see that they deny Jesus by the way that they live. If you read the book of Titus, Paul wrote to Titus and said that there are some who make a claim to godliness. I mean, I say, I'm a Christian, but by their deeds, they deny him. They say it, but they don't live it. That could be, that certainly fits the context, so that certainly could be what he's talking about here. 
And what's the destiny of these guys? Well, we're not going to read verses 5 through 7 for the sake of time, but I can summarize it for you. Jude gives three examples of how God has dealt with people like that in history. He says that the unbelieving Jews in the desert, God let that generation die, he judged them. The Sodom and Gomorrah, he, he judged them. Even the angels who sinned, and consequently we have the, the demonic realm as a result, he says even they are an example of punishment. And so you have these three historical examples, yet in, in spite of this, Look, what, look at verse 8. These guys know their history, but look at verse 8. They don't live in light of it. He says, Yet, in the same manner, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil against, uh, and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. So in spite of the clear way that God's dealt with folks in the past, unbelievers in the past, these guys ignore that and they do what they want anyway. And Jude describes them this way. says that they reject all authority. That means you've got somebody in authority over you, but you have nothing to do with what they say. You just do what you want to do. They reject authority. They defile the flesh. That Clearly in the text, this is talking about sexual immorality. And then the third thing there is they revile angelic majesties. And in the context, as it moves on and talks about Michael and Satan... To revile angelic majesties probably means that they, that they speak uh, abusively to demons. I was fascinated to see these pictures of thousands of Muslims during the Hajj pilgrimage uh, toward Mecca last year. These are from last March, I think. And they did a ritual. You can see the people up here at the top throwing stones, and you see at the bottom here what they're throwing stones at. This pillar represents the devil. And they're throwing stones uh, at the devil in a form of a ritual. And what I found particularly interesting about this um, ritual is that after this event took place, there was a rush or a mob or a stampede, what you might have, what to call it, and 40 people were killed. And I thought, isn't it, isn't it interesting how people would throw rocks toward Satan, but at the same time, Satan lives on and 40 of them die. Some televangelists and radio preachers throw different stones at the devil and at demons, much more akin to what's described here as they give what is called a railing accusation, um, that they speak arrogantly towards demons. And I don't know, have you ever heard, have you ever heard this, have you ever seen this, where people are talking to demons and, and saying things, you know, you know, basically commanding them to do this, this, or to do that? Jude gives the example here that's only recorded here in the Scripture. It's not in the book of Exodus or any of the Pentateuch about Moses' body. But we are told here that Michael the archangel disputed and argued with the devil about the body of Moses. And when he did that, 
Michael did not bring a railing accusation against him, but instead he said, the Lord rebuke you. One time, Jesus' disciples tried to cast out a demon, and they couldn't because they hadn't prayed about it. Uh, Jesus says this, this kind comes out only by prayer. I cannot think of a place in the scripture that we as believers are told to confront demons, but rather that we are to take them to the Lord, that is, the Lord rebuke you, or do you take it as a matter of prayer? If you think there's demons somehow involved in your life, take it to the Lord and put him in the realm of God's authority. Because even the archangel, even Michael, the highest of all the holy angels, did not go toe-to-toe with the devil. But instead, he put him in God's domain. The guys that are described here do these things. They defile the flesh. They're in sexual immorality. They don't care anything about authority. They speak against angels, angelic majesties. And the text goes on again. We won't read it for the sake of time, but in verses 11 through 15, they describe them as full of hatred and murder, just like Cain in the Old Testament. They're full of greed, just like Balaam in the Old Testament. They're full of envy and rebellion, just like Korah in the Old Testament. Look at verse 16, though, because this strikes a little closer to home. He describes them and says, These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. You know, it's so easy to to read these verses and to think, okay, Jude's talking about these false teachers, you know, in the first century. They came into the church, and it's not really that exciting. All right, quit thinking about some false teacher in the first century church And look at verse 16 again from the perspective of your own heart. Grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering for the sake of gaining an advantage. Isn't it amazing how God's word is so much more relevant than at first glance? I saw a a cartoon about a guy having coffee with his pastor, and this is what the guy told him. He says, all I'm trying to say is that certain people might think that 1215 is a little late to be getting out of church, that your office is offensive, that a guy my age doesn't need a guy your age telling me how to raise my kids, that if it weren't for your crazy third world projects, we could have repaved our parking lot by now. Now, I'm not saying those are my opinions, of course, just thought you would like to know what others might be thinking. I like that. Because that represents a lot of reality. In my own heart as well. We can't just look at verse 16 and brush it over as what Jude is saying about these false teachers. Because if it also talks about our own hearts, then we need to pay attention, particularly as the text moves on, as to how to live differently. Malcolm Muggeridge once told of a time when he was a journalist, of course, but he was in India. And one night, he uh, came out of his house to go for a swim in the river. Noticed across the river, in the dim light, he could see a woman bathing. 
And he said that he'd never given in to this kind of temptation before, but just something hit him. And he decided that, that you know, this looked so alluring that he would go over. And so he swam over furiously, swimming across the water, just imagining what delights awaited him on the other side. God on the other side, you know where I'm going with this? God on the other side got about three feet from the lady, and the light was enough to where she could see, where he could see, that it was an old woman with leprosy, smiling at him with teeth missing. And he said that his initial reaction, he said he was gripped with disgust. And he said that he thought, what a dirty, lecherous woman. And then he said it hit him that really what was dirty and lecherous was his own heart. You see, it's real easy to read these descriptions of these ungodly men and say, get him, Jude, you bet. But then we only need to look as far as our own hearts to see that we are also bent on following after our own lusts. We're also bent to grumble and to find fault with everything and to flatter people so that they'll think better of us. But God is in, the is in the business of forgiveness for those who will turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. God is in the business of changing hearts, of not just forgiving you and say, okay, I'll see you in a, in a lifetime when you get to heaven, but he's also in the business of forgiving you and saying, all right, now we've got a lifetime to get you ready, a lifetime to mold your heart, to make it more like mine and less like the heart that needed salvation to begin with. So I don't think it's a coincidence that Jude immediately turns his attention from talking about unbelievers in verse 16 and previous, now in verse 17 and following, to talking about you and me. Look at what he says. But you, beloved, and in the original language that's emphatic, you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ that they were saying to you, in the last time there shall be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Twice he said it, and I tried to emphasize it because in the original language, Jude emphasizes it. He wrote it in such a way that when he says, but you, beloved, he was underlining it, he was italicizing it, he got out a big uh, highlighter and highlighted it. You are to be different. They're like that, their condemnation is like that, but you, beloved, are to be different. And he tells us that we're to be different in a couple of ways. First of all, he says, you ought to remember the words. Remember what he said earlier when he talked about the history, about Sodom and Gomorrah, about the, the, the Jews coming out of Egypt, about the angels that rebelled, and he says, even though they know about this, they ignore it and they do what they want anyway. He says, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words. The words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles. So it's not just that you know the Word of God. It's that you remember it in such a way that you live it. You ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles. 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, that is for us the New Testament. And also he says that you need to keep yourself in the love of God. How do you do that? Well, he tells us. He gives us three things. First of all, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, and that's a group activity, building yourselves up. It's involved in fellowship. You're involved in the lives of people beyond Sunday morning. If you just come on Sunday morning and listen to this guy talk, that might do a little bit for you. But you know what? You need to get involved in this slew of stuff that we spent 10 minutes announcing because that is the way that Jude says that you're able to build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Also, praying in the Holy Spirit and waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is that talking about? Waiting anxiously talks about the fact that your life is not summed up in, I've got to get satisfaction here and now. And you know what? A lot of us fall for that, because that's our culture. Our culture says, look, get all you can, get it right now, because you only go around once. And in our minds, we know, well, I know that's not right. But in our lives, we'll live just the opposite. And we'll have all our hopes and all our dreams set on something that is going to burn one day. Be it a spouse. Be it a house be it a bank account, be it a job, be it a position, be it something that this world offers you to find satisfaction. Jude says no. It's not that you don't have a job, a spouse, and a house, and all that stuff, but it's that that stuff is not where you are anxiously longing for fulfillment. This place is not our home. Thank Christ it's not our home. Could you imagine living like this for all eternity? Whew! No thanks. No, thank you. I much rather look forward to what this next book across the page talks about. A time where there is no more crying, no more tears, no more pain. And we will see the face of God. And his servants will serve him. That's what I'm looking forward to. And we've got to continually come back to what Jude is saying. Because essentially what he's saying, in a book whose purpose is to encourage us to contend for the faith, he's saying, look, you contend for the faith when you guard your intimate walk with God. And he tells us how to do that. You remember the words of the apostles. You're spending time, precious time, in the word of God. He says that you build yourselves up in your most holy faith. The idea of fellowship together. Prayer. You have an intimate time of prayer with God. And also, anxiously looking forward, your hopes are not rooted in what's going to happen this weekend. Your hopes are rooted in what's going to happen in eternity. It's so essential. You will not keep your head above water in this life if you do not keep what Jude is talking about here in the forefront of your mind to continually remember these things. Time in the Word, time in prayer, time fellowshipping with others that can build you up and a mindset that's always looking forward to heaven, not to Friday night. C.S. Lewis once wrote in his book called The Four Loves, he said, All human beings pass away. Do not let your happiness depend on something you may lose. Isn't that a great line? Don't let your happiness depend on something you may lose. If love is to be a blessing, not a misery, it must be for the only beloved who will never pass away. And then from that intimate walk with God, it's not just for you. Build you up, build you up, but then it spills over into the lives of other people. 
Look at verse 22. He says, And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. What he's talking about here is it's kind of the same language that Jesus used when he says, you know, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Well, you know, I'll give you a hint. Cutting your hand off isn't going to keep you from sinning. Okay, what Jesus is saying is you need to go through to drastic measures to do anything you can to keep from not walking with Christ. He says even if it takes cutting off your hand, you cut off that hand. If it means quitting your job, you quit your job. Get another job that allows you to walk faithfully. And the lessons go on and on. Take desperate measures, drastic measures to be faithful, which is what he's saying here, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Have mercy, he says, on some who are doubting. You know, I read an article in World Magazine, had an interview with Larry King, and he said something that I found very interesting. He said this, quote, I have a lot of respect for true people of faith. I've done so many interviews on it. I'm too into my head to be into faith. Faith is a wonderful thing. I envy people who have it. I just can't make the leap. I remember as a kid, my father died when I was young, and that was unexplainable to me. The God of the Old Testament, I didn't like things he did. Abraham, sacrifice your son. That always bothered me as a kid. I remember thinking, why would he do that to Abraham? As a test? I don't know. I just don't know. That's still true to this day. And this interview was last year, last fall. You know, when I read what King writes here, and I go across into my Bible, and I see what it says, have mercy on some who are doubting. Because if what he says is true, this is sincere doubt. It's not the kind of doubt that says, well, you know, I, I doubt that there's a God, or meaning, I doubt that, that the, Jesus is really the only way, or you try to share your faith with somebody, and they say, well, what about the guy over in Africa? That's a smokescreen, Okay. But the doubt that he's talking about here is those who really are seeking the truth. And he says, have mercy. I mean, you were there one time. Has it been so long that you don't remember that yourself? Have mercy on those who are doubting. And others, save them, just as if you're snatching out of the fire. Tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. And on some, have mercy with fear. And, that, and that's the idea that you, know, you want to you get involved, but you don't want to get so involved that you get snatched in or caught up in it. Like Paul told the Galatians, you know, those who are spiritual, restore those who are weak, but be careful lest you too get ensnared. Henry Drummond once wrote, we are born questioners. Look at the wonderment of a little child in his eyes before it can speak. The child's great word when it begins is, why? That's the incipient doubt in the nature of man. Respect doubt for its origin. It's an inevitable thing. It is not a thing to be crushed. Doubt is the prelude of knowledge. Doubt is the prelude of knowledge. You see, our responsibility for the Christian life is not simply to grow up ourselves. It's not simply to come, to get fed, to go out, and to be your own little Christian entity all week long. But it is to come, to be fed, to go out, and to have mercy on those who are doubting to let your life spill over into the life of somebody else. Really, in a sense, it's the Great Commission said in different words. 
You could say it like this, that you contend for the faith when you have mercy on those who are struggling. I grew up in San Antonio, and I don't know how many times I've been to the Alamo, but there's a story, historically, I guess it's true, um, it's hard to know since everybody was killed, <laughs> if it really happened or not, but the legend goes that at, at the final siege of the Alamo, the Mexicans had the, the Texicans surrounded, and the Texicans turned the cannons from outside the walls and then started blasting inside the walls where those who had infiltrated the walls had gotten in. And I thought, what an interesting picture, because that's exactly what Jude does here. He said, you know, I wanted to write to you about salvation, but instead I'm going to turn the guns inside the walls so those who have infiltrated and tell you, watch out for them. You'll know them this way. And he gives a couple ways you'll know them. They turn the grace of God into a license to sin. They deny the Lord, and he goes through the whole deal. But I want you to also examine your own heart here this morning and ask in all honesty which camp you find yourself more living. Not believing, but living. Is your life really more summarized by what it says back in verse 16? Grumbling, finding fault, following after your own lusts, speaking arrogantly, flattering for the sake of gain. In other words, your life is totally consumed with you, with yourself. Beginning and end of every decision I make is myself. Or is it, like he says, but you, beloved, are to be different. You're to build yourselves up and not just you, not just looking for satisfaction here and now on this planet, but looking ahead, waiting anxiously for the hope to come and then spilling over into the lives of other people. Which camp do you see yourself in? That is convicting. Because in all honesty, we might see ourselves in a little bit of both. Jude is writing that, we're going, that we would move from being the selfish motivators, motivated by selfish interest, to being motivated by the grace of God, Jesus Christ died for your sins, to live a life of gratitude, and obedience to the Lord and anxiously wait until he comes. The last two verses I'd like for us to all read together. It's kind of a doxology, a benediction, a blessing. And so we'll read 24 and 25 together. We'll pray our projector holds out. And uh, then I'll close in prayer. Why don't we stand and read it together? <clears throat> Read this with me. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do just bow before you today. And in our hearts, as much as we can muster, we want to be humble before you, acknowledging that you are God. You have created the universe with a word, and with a word one day you will destroy it. That you are a powerful God. That the sunrise and the sunsets that we see every day 
are a testimony to your power and to your faithfulness as they are consistent. And so we look not only to nature, but we look in the Word of God and see your faithfulness and your love. And we also see, Lord, your justice, that you will not let sin go unpunished. And so I pray for any who are here today and have not placed their faith in Jesus, that they would honestly see themselves in the camp with all these ungodly folks that are described in this chapter, that they might instead turn from that and to place their faith and to live their life for the one who died for them. And Lord, for all of us who are Christians, for those of us who have placed our faith in you, I pray that you would continue to dissect the world from our heart, that we would not place all of our hopes and desires on what's to happen this weekend, next weekend, next year, but instead, Lord, we look to forever as our satisfaction. And in the meantime, we are to build ourselves up. We're to spend time in the Word and prayer and fellowship. We're also to help other people to reach out to them. So Lord, until you come, we eagerly, anxiously wait and give us the strength to stay faithful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you.